Welcome back to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. My name is Judd Littleton, and I'm a partner in the litigation group and co-head of the firm's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. I'm here with Julia Malkina, also a partner in our litigation group and co-head of the Securities Litigation Practice, and Morgan Ratner, who helps head up our Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. Today, we are continuing a series of podcast supplements to SNC's Supreme Court Business Review, which is our summary of the decisions from the past term that are most relevant to businesses. You can find the Supreme Court Business Review, as well as all our podcast episodes once they're released, on SNC's website at www.sulcrom.com. In this episode, we are delighted to be joined by Andrew Finn, a partner in SNC's litigation group and coordinator of our arbitration group. Andrew's practice focuses on multi-jurisdictional and international disputes, including commercial and investor state arbitrations. Andrew will discuss some of the Supreme Court's recent decisions in the arbitration space, covering Badgero versus Walters, Morgan versus Sundance, and ZF Automotive versus Luxshare. It was a big year for arbitration at the court. In fact, those are only three of the five arbitration cases that the court decided this term. We'll cover the other two in a future episode. But for now, Andrew, why don't we kick things off with ZF Automotive against Luxshare. Can you tell us what that case is about? Thanks, Morgan, and thanks for the introduction, Julia. So this case is about discovery in U.S. courts that's in aid of a foreign arbitration proceeding. A federal statute, Section 1782 of Title 28 of the U.S. Code, says that federal district courts may grant discovery for use in a proceeding in a foreign or international tribunal. Parties to actual and contemplated international arbitrations that are seated outside the U.S. had sought to use Section 1782 as a vehicle to obtain U.S. court-style discovery for use in their arbitrations. But federal circuit courts had split on the question of whether international arbitration tribunals qualify as foreign or international tribunal as defined by the statute. This was an issue that had been percolating up through various courts for the last several years, and this was the second time that the Supreme Court granted cert to try to resolve the circuit split. That's right. The first case presenting the issue was set for argument last October, but the parties agreed to dismiss it. That's usually a sign that they've settled. Andrew, can you give us some background on the case that actually did make it to a Supreme Court decision? Yes, there were actually two lower court decisions involved in the ZF Automotive case. In the first case, a company called Luxshare, which was a Hong Kong-based company, alleged fraud in the sales transactions with ZF, a Michigan-based automotive parts manufacturer, which was a subsidiary of a German corporation. The sales contract provided that all disputes would be resolved by arbitrators under rules called DIS, which is a private arbitral institution based in Berlin. Luxshare filed an application in the Eastern District of Michigan seeking an issuance of subpoenas for discovery against ZF and its officers in the U.S. under statute section 1782. The district court granted the request. The Supreme Court actually granted a stay and cert before judgment, meaning the court basically skipped the Sixth Circuit altogether. Yeah, I think that's a pretty clear sign that the court was ready to hear these issues after the earlier case was taken off its docket. So, Andrew, you said that there were two cases at issue here. What happened in the second case? 
In the second case, a Russian corporation that held rights of a Russian investor in a bankrupt Lithuanian bank had initiated an ad hoc investor state arbitration against the country of Lithuania under a bilateral investment treaty between Lithuania and Russia. The assignee claimed that Lithuania had expropriated certain investments from the bank and filed an application for discovery under Section 1782 in the U.S., seeking information from third parties that were involved in the dispute. The Southern District of New York District Court granted the discovery request, and the Second Circuit affirmed following its longstanding precedent. Interestingly, the Second Circuit was not as permissive as the Sixth Circuit, though. It ruled that Section 1782 was available in aid of investor state arbitrations, but not purely private commercial arbitrations like those involved in the Luxshare case. So the Supreme Court decided to consolidate these two cases so that it can consider the issues in both contexts, a commercial arbitration and an investor state arbitration. Maybe the answer might be different. So is that what happened? Well, despite many commentators thinking that there might have been a different result, the answer was no. The Supreme Court unanimously held that Section 1782 did not authorize domestic discovery in the U.S. for use in either of the arbitral proceedings at issue in both cases. The court first interpreted the term foreign or international tribunal in Section 1782 to refer only to governmental or intergovernmental bodies. In other words, a tribunal belonging to a foreign nation or one that involves or is of two or more nations, meaning that those nations have authorized the tribunal with some official power to adjudicate disputes. That was the rule that the Supreme Court, the interpretation of Section 1782 that the Supreme Court started with, And then it went on to apply that interpretation in the two types of arbitrations at issue and held that neither qualified as a governmental or intergovernmental body. In the Luxshare case, the court reasoned that the DIS arbitral tribunal was formed by the parties pursuant to a private contract and that no government was involved in creating the arbitral panel or prescribing its procedures or rules. The court thought that the investor state arbitration involving Lithuania was a closer call, but ultimately found that the tribunal there was more private in nature than intergovernmental. The court explained that neither Lithuania's presence as a party in the dispute nor the fact that a treaty authorized the arbitration was dispositive, and nothing in the treaty at issue reflected Russia's or Lithuania's intent that the ad hoc tribunal at issue exercise some governmental authority. So we know that parties involved in private international commercial arbitrations will no longer be able to invoke Section 1782 to obtain discovery in the United States for such proceedings. Is it a clean decision for investor state arbitrations as well? No, the decision is likely to narrow the use of the statute for discovery in some investor state arbitrations. However, it remains to be seen how lower courts will apply this decision in arbitrations brought under investment treaties with different terms than the Russia-Lithuanian treaty at issue in the second case. The court's decision relied heavily on the particular terms of that treaty, which provided for ad hoc arbitration as an option for resolving an investment dispute. There has been some debate in the international arbitration community about whether the same result would apply for investor state tribunals constituted 
under treaties that provide for ICSID arbitration, which is a separately authorized arbitral institution that government membership is required under the Convention on the Settlement of Investment Disputes between states and nations of other states, which is commonly referred to as the ICSID Convention. That's all really helpful. Thanks. Um, let's turn next to the court's decision in Badgero against Walters. This case involved when federal courts have jurisdiction over requests to confirm or vacate a domestic arbitration award under the Federal Arbitration Act, or FAA. Andrew, can you give us a brief background on that case? Absolutely. So Section 4 of the FAA authorizes parties to an arbitration agreement to ask a court to compel an arbitration proceeding. And under Sections 9 and 10, parties may apply to a court to confirm or vacate an arbitral award at the end of the arbitration. But the FAA does not itself grant federal courts subject matter jurisdiction over those disputes. Instead, a federal court can generally hear a dispute only if it presents a federal law question separate from the FAA, or the parties to the dispute satisfy requirements for diversity jurisdiction, meaning the parties are from different states and there's at least $75,000 at stake. The Supreme Court has previously held that on a request to compel arbitration under Section 4 of the FAA, federal courts can look through the petition to compel arbitration to the underlying controversy to determine whether federal subject matter jurisdiction exists. The question in Badgero was whether the same rule applies to applications to confirm or vacate an arbitration award under Sections 9 and 10 of the FAA. And the court answered that question with a resounding no. Instead, the petition to confirm or vacate arbitration must itself establish a basis for subject matter jurisdiction. Thanks very much for that helpful background on Badgero, Andrew. What are some practical takeaways from the decision? So in terms of practical takeaways from the Badgero decision, fewer domestic arbitration awards will be enforceable in federal court. Applications to confirm or vacate an arbitration award usually involve state contract law and so do not present a federal question. As a result, many parties will have to rely on state courts to apply the FAA unless diversity jurisdiction exists. This is the case even if the underlying arbitration involved a federal claim. It's important to note, however, that this decision should not impact most international arbitral awards which can be enforced or vacated under a separate section of the FAA that implements the New York Convention on Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. That's a helpful clarification. Finally, let's talk a bit about Morgan against Sundance, which is a case about the waiver of the right to arbitrate. Federal courts have found that under certain circumstances, a party may waive her right to arbitrate a dispute, usually by litigating a claim in court without trying to send it to arbitration. Andrew, what happened in Morgan? Well, in that case, the plaintiff was an hourly employee at a Taco Bell franchise restaurant owned by the defendant, Sundance. Like many employers, Sundance required prospective employees to sign an arbitration agreement as part of its standard employee application process. Although the plaintiff had signed an arbitration agreement when she was hired, she filed a nationwide collective action against Sundance in federal court for violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act. 
seeking to recover wages and overtime pay. Sundance had filed a motion to dismiss and actively litigated the case in federal court for eight months without mentioning the arbitration agreement. Sundance then changed course and moved to stay the litigation and compel arbitration against the plaintiff. Morgan opposed the motion, arguing that Sundance had waived its right to arbitrate. A number of federal courts had applied a special waiver rule to arbitration, which involved not just showing of a waiver itself of the right to arbitrate, but also a showing that the opposing party had suffered some prejudice, the party seeking to compel arbitration's failure to do so at some earlier point. The Eighth Circuit was one of those courts, and so it refused to find a waiver because Morgan had not been prejudiced by Sundance's litigation strategy. The court noted that the parties had not begun discovery or contested any matters on the merits. And now what did the Supreme Court say about that, Andrew? In a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court rejected the Eighth Circuit's prejudice argument. The court explained that the FAA's policy favoring arbitration is about treating arbitration contracts just like any other contract, and therefore does not permit federal courts to devise special pro-arbitration or anti-arbitration federal rules. The court further explained that waiver does not require showing a prejudice outside the arbitration context under federal law and determined that directing federal courts to treat arbitration applications in a manner provided by law, the text of the FAA makes clear that courts are not to create some arbitration-specific variants of federal procedural rules. Interesting. So maybe a little bit of overcorrection from the courts in that respect. So what do you think the broader takeaways might be from Morgan? So what's clear after Morgan is that there's no special arbitration rule, that there needs to be some prejudice in order to establish a waiver of a party's contractual right to arbitrate. The practical implications beyond that are unclear. The decision may result in federal courts being more inclined to find that a litigant has waived the contractual right to arbitrate. At the same time, the ruling is limited to some special federal law that some courts have been applying and doesn't really say anything about whether state law contract principles governing waiver might come into play in the question in lower courts. And in fact, the Supreme Court left for the Eighth Circuit to decide the question of whether Sundance knowingly waived the right to arbitrate by acting inconsistently with that right. So it remains to be seen how the Eighth Circuit will address that question on remand and how other circuits and district courts may do so. In any case, when defending litigation in federal court, litigants with a contractual right to arbitration should carefully consider whether the benefits of invoking the litigation machinery in court and or delaying a motion to compel outweigh the risk of finding of waiver later. Finally, Andrew, do you have any general takeaways for our listeners from these three decisions taken together? So I think the main takeaway is that the court isn't going to reflexively side with what any litigant says is a pro-arbitration position in every case. Some commentators had taken the view that earlier Supreme Court decisions in recent terms had tended to come down on the pro-arbitration side, perhaps because the court was clearing away some states' fairly staunch resistance to enforcing arbitration agreements in various contexts. But now that we've gotten mostly past that, 
the court isn't automatically pro-arbitration, as decisions like Morgan and Badgero illustrate. And the court is hesitant to interpret statutes like Section 1782 to automatically apply to arbitrations when the statute doesn't clearly say so. Instead, the court is looking to the controlling text of the statute at issue or the contract at issue and is deciding arbitration questions pretty much the same way that it would decide any other contractual question or statutory interpretation. Thank you very much for joining us, Andrew. We appreciate you sharing your expertise to help our listeners digest what was a very active term in the arbitration space. Thank you for listening to SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. Please also join Judd, Morgan, me, and our guests for upcoming episodes of our Supreme Court Business Review podcast series. Thank you.